As we follow our series in Genesis, we up to chapter 16. We're going to do the whole chapter this morning. And our title is The God Who Sees. The God Who Sees. Just when, I don't know if you've ever been there, but just when you thought that you've got this whole Christian life figured out and worked out and that you're about to reach the next level, as it were, there comes another twist. Like Abram, you would imagine that if you've heard the voice of God, you've seen a sign from God, that you're getting to that level where you're not going to sin again, that you're never going to doubt God's promises again that you're going to live each and every day trusting and obeying God, that life is going to be wonderful. Yet the evidence from Abram and for many other characters from Scripture and I think the evidence from our own lives, certainly mine, we know that that is just not the case. One thing is sending God sending us into a trial, it is something else to dive into temptation and swimming in it, taking to it like fish to water. Just think about it. Here is Abram who answered God's call to leave his land, his home, his family behind. He's trusted God through all of the battles and extended family trials Yet for all his faith and his good deeds, Abram, I find, a thoroughly, frustratingly human being. You know, he's just so human. There is still within him this, this, this pull towards the carnal things of this world that he, come on, Abram, when are you going to get it together? So, just, be, just because you, you might have heard a divine voice and seen signs and covenants and all of this, that you're going to be free from sin and disappointments of life. So, for all of the drama and all the assurances of a glorious future that God gave Abram at the end of chapter 15, it was a wonderful... For a couple of weeks we looked at that chapter, didn't we? And here... Still we find Abram, he is childless. Another year had come, another year had gone and the crib is still empty. So Sarai and Abram try to help God out with his promises. It's not a good idea. And if not try and help God out, then at least sort of push God to get a bit of a move on. Of course, this was never God's will for their lives, but as with us, this doesn't stop them from, from trying or to rushing headlong into it anyway. So, the storyline in chapter 16 reads like uh, an episode of Jerry Springer, that type of thing. Uh, it, it's just, it, wouldn't, it would be funny, it would be hilarious if it wasn't so tragic. And here we have it in all its colours. 
the, the levels that we as human beings, even so-called godly people, the levels that we can descend to. It's sad. So, let's talk about it. The first point, asking for troubles, verses 1 to 4. Asking for trouble. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. And Abram sort of gulped a bit. Are you sure? Fine, that's okay. I'm okay with that, honey. Sure, great idea. He didn't think I had to think about it too long, did he? Ten years they've been living in Canaan. Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. So what are the problems here? Some are obvious, some not so. Let's look at the cultural issue here, the cultural one. In their culture, like many cultures today, in our day, there is a strong pressure to have children, especially sons. Sons guarantee that your family name would be carried on. Sons, having sons show that you were prosperous and that the gods were looking down upon you. To be childless is the opposite, that it was a mark of reproach, that you were cursed. You can imagine some of the neighbours riding their camels and coming along for a barbecue and whatever and saying, well, Abram, I'm impressed. Look at all the cattle, look at all your servants, look at the size of that tent, my goodness. How many children do you have? None. But, but God has promised to, to, to give me a son and, and make me a father of a great nation. And the other guys are <laughs> yeah, right. Who are you kidding? Look at you. 85, 86, come on, man. Who are you kidding here? And the word would have got around. The stigma was so strong that if a wife in that culture would not have any children, the custom, the cultural custom of that day was for her to give one of her servant girls to her husband as a concubine. And that was, according to the culture, it was perfectly fine. And the children of, of that union, so the, the servant girl, the slave, became like a bit of like a surrogate, like a surrogate mother. And the children of that union became the children of the wife. Cultural pressures. Think about the many cultural pressures in our day. To just do away with the word of God. Nah, that's old fashioned. And to, we're swimming in this culture, man. That's old fashioned. Come on, you've got to move with the times. What's wrong with you? Just adapt, adopt, accept, tolerate. Don't forget, that's that's the old days, man. 
cultural pressure. Secondly, a lack of faith. It appears that God is silent, certainly in, in, in the first half of this chapter. But don't worry, God is seeing all the developments, what's going on. When Sarah says, the Lord has prevented me, she wasn't saying something that wasn't true. It was true. The Lord was preventing her from having children. But I thought the Lord was going to bless them. But when the Lord said so, it's time. Until that time, no. But the, so the Lord was preventing her. So it should have been some warning lights going off here. If the Lord has prevented you from doing something that you want to do and maybe even something that he's promised you you will have but it's not yet time, then it's wrong to try and get around it by other means that he has prevented you from doing. Don't take a tangent. Don't don't take a side road just so you can get to the destination eventually. When the Lord has sent you a trial, be careful not to get out of it through your own scheming. Abram has been there before when he went down to Egypt. And it was in this context that Sarai came up with a plan to give Abram her maid. They wanted to bring about God's will by producing their son, producing an heir that God had promised. Motives were right, methods were wrong. This is a special problem for us because Aussies are a pretty pragmatic lot, aren't we? Very pragmatic. If it works, if it looks good, it must be right. Okay? Don't think about it too much, it must be right. Just do it. After all, look at the results. Everybody else is doing it. But you see, human solutions that leave God out of the picture and might even give God a polite recognition as an afterthought, just you're asking for trouble. You really are. What's another issue here in the background? The past failures. We read here that her servant Hagar was an Egyptian. Hagar was most likely part of the the dowry that Pharaoh gave to Abram as part of the whole marriage because Pharaoh was going to marry Sarah, remember? That was part of the southern wanderings down south. Had Abram never journeyed to Egypt, there would be no Hagar to marry. So Abram's sin of going down south is now catching up with him again. In both cases, we see here Sarah gave Hagar to Abram and there's a similarity here with what happened in the garden in chapter 3 of Genesis. It's very similar. Let me draw some similarities. Here Abram listened to his wife just as Adam listened to his. Here Sarah took Hagar just as Eve 
took the fruit. Here Sarah gave Hagar to her husband just as Eve gave the fruit to hers. In both cases, the man is a willing participant. Sure, honey. What do we say? It is in many cases, I find it's in many cases that it is, that the temptation is that to cool your zeal for the Lord. Just go a little bit cooler on God and your enthusiasm for religious things. A lot of the times it comes from your husband, from your wife, who might be going through a lukewarm period and then the whole temperature of the family suddenly starts to get lower and lower and everybody seems to accommodate themselves to a lower and lower spiritual level. Someone is sick in the family, the whole family doesn't go to church. Really? What's the, is the whole family now? Is, is the child paralysed? What, what are you doing? No, they just got a cold, so the whole family is now not going to church. What about the other kids? What about the rest of them? No, no, the whole family. We, we're, in, we're together in this. Really? So you're not going to work tomorrow because... Well, a whole lot. Okay, fine. That's the example we're setting. That's the standard. So we just lowered the bar. Fantastic. Good. That'll get you somewhere. You see, rather than saying, no, we're going to have a support team, but the rest of us will continue in our walk with the Lord. We need to be encouraged. We need to be lifted up. No excuses. can't continue to settle for the lowest common denominator. What are the reactions? Verses 4 to 6. What are the reactions? When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarah said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I'll put my slave in your arms and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. Funny that. May the Lord judge between you and me. You know, really there are very few redeemable features in any of the three characters in this story. In all of this fiasco, everybody reacts in a bad way. So let's look at him. Let's look at Abram, for example. Abram was irresponsible, verse 6. After hearing Sarah's accusation and, and, and Abram trying to interject, Sarah basically saying, it's your fault. But, but you said, it's, never mind. Rather than taking responsibility, Abraham responds, eh, just do whatever you want, it's fine. As if Sarah was going to behave in a godly manner after being given this permission to treat the servant, the slave, do whatever you want with her. He's acting like a wimp. He's not acting like a patriarch. Father Abraham. You know what he wants? He wants peace. I'm so sick of hearing all these complaints. Do whatever you want. And so he abdicates his spiritual leadership to avoid further conflict. This is one of the, another one of our diseases in the 21st century. So many 
Christian husbands, just like Abram, behaving just like Abram. One of the big problems in Western marriages, and not just Christians, but I think in, in a lot of Western marriages as well, that suddenly the, the passive male who doesn't assume responsibility for the spiritual direction of the marriage and the family. Where is he? The man so easily becomes the provider, the ATM, rather than the leader, the husband, the father. Now, I'm not implying, because I'm going to get into trouble, I know they're going to hear the recording, blah, blah, blah. I'm not implying that it's wrong to listen to your wife. Often, very often, it is the smartest thing a husband can do, especially if you're a knucklehead like me. God has given us our wives to give us wisdom and insight which we often lack. I'm coming to that, George. Thank you. See, you read my sermon, George. (laughs) The problem isn't listening to your wife. The problem is advocating spiritual leadership if your wife suddenly suggests something that isn't from the Lord. That's what I'm getting at. That is the problem. God has given us husbands and wives for the family. There is a reason for that. Family is his idea, not a Western cultural invention. What about, okay, so that's Abram, uh, Sarai. Well, what about Sarai? Well, she was unreasonable. Verse 5. Sarai suddenly started feeling miserable because of the pride and the haughtiness of Hagar, this young, beautiful Egyptian lass. So, if, if Sarah was feeling miserable, then Hagar didn't make things easy, you know, sort of rubbing her tummy as she's walking along and, you know, all of that. That doesn't help, does it? So, if Sarah's miserable, the whole of the household's miserable. You know, what is the opposite of happy wife, happy life, George? Cranky wife, miserable life. Is that the opposite? Okay. Cranky wife, miserable life. And who gets the blame? Abram. She tried to blame Abram for the problem. She tried to blame Hagar for the problem. She even dragged God into the problem. She blamed everyone but herself for getting into the mess that they were in. It's everybody else's fault. Can I say this? And it's, it's a lesson from this passage and many other passages from Scripture, not just this one. It is impossible for a man or woman to be sexually involved with another person outside of the boundaries of marriage without it being an obvious sin, because it is a sin, and then trying to excuse your way out of it, trying to 
seek that you know you were vulnerable, blah blah blah, it goes on. And then that starts to cause relational problems. Problems of mistrust, of of jealousy, of self esteem, issues of self esteem, because you feel that you've been used or you use somebody else and you Thought life suddenly gets consumed by this act or acts that continue. Can I just say that if you are involved in sexual immorality, in God's name, I beg you to repent, to stop it. Please. For your sake, for the sake of your family, for the sake of your spiritual direction, Please stop. It will destroy your life and the life of your family. See, Hagar ran away. So we looked at Abram, we looked at Sarah, and we're looking at Hagar. Hagar, what, how did she react? She ran away. Hagar decided that the answer to her problems was to take flight. Packed up, left to get away from it all. As in those days, in that culture, you simply weren't free. If you were somebody's servant or slave, you simply weren't able to simply quit and go. She was, where was she going? Well, she was travelling down south toward Egypt, back to her own culture, her own people, her own gods. Clearly, she wasn't seeking the Lord and his will. You see, this is another common response when problems crop up in marriage, church, and work. You know, if something doesn't work out in marriage, just find yourself a new mate. When problems arise at church, don't seek a solution, find a new church. When problems arise on the job, don't fix it, find a new job. And it just goes on. We're continually running away. And notice how in these first six verses, God, like I said before, he's, he's strangely absent. He's given the credit or blame for preventing Sarah from conceiving and his name is invoked to justify her point of view. May God judge between me and you. Oh, here comes God. Name God. But he's never sought You know, his will is never sought, never obeyed. But don't worry, God is seeing all of this. But but you might have heard. I'm I'm going I'm going go out. I'm going to go with this with this non-Christian guy, and I I might even marry him because I've prayed about it and I have a peace about it. Only God can judge me. You can't say anything. Really? Let me just say it again, as I've said it many times before. You don't need to pray about this. It's not a matter for prayer whether you should date a non-Christian or marry a non-Christian. It's not a matter for prayer. You don't have to seek God's will because it's in the Bible. You don't have to pray about it. If the Bible says you can't do it, you don't do it. Is that clear enough? 
am I making myself clear because it's in the Bible, you don't have to pray about it and you didn't see God's will. The Lord says flee. That's what you've got to run away from. That's before marriage. Now, after marriage, you obviously you've got to live with it. You can't run away from that. Whatever the circumstance. I know many couples where one or the husband or the wife is a believer, the other person isn't. You've got to, the gospel says, the epistles say, you've got to stay in there. But why get into the difficulty even before? And the nightmare that ensues. Surely, by God's grace, yes, he can do, he can bring your wife, your husband to Christ, to himself. Yes, yes, yes. But I don't want to even start with the horror stories. As a pastor, in my own wider family, I've seen it, I know about it, and I've heard it from some of you as well. In this matter and in many other matters, you don't need to pray about something that God has clearly forbidden in his word. The problem is not seeking direction. The problem is obedience. That's the difference. Okay? Thirdly, God's intervention. Verses 7 to 9. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said to her, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Me, I find it quite encouraging that no one, not even a, a lowly Egyptian servant as she would have been considered in that day, is too lost in God's sight. The angel of the Lord found Hagar. It's great to know that Hagar wasn't alone, that God saw her affliction, that God sees our affliction. Who is this angel of the Lord? As in other passages in the Bible, I firmly believe that the angel of the Lord is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ in a pre-incarnate appearance. The Good Shepherd, as he would later be known, went looking for her to seek and to find the lost. We may think that we found Jesus but in reality, he is the one that finds us. The angel asks a very important question, a couple of questions here. And these are the questions for the ages, isn't it? The angel asks, where have you come from and where are you going? Perhaps the angel of the Lord is asking some of us here the same question. Where have you come from? Where are you going? You know. These are the questions that you need to know answers to in difficult situations. Where have you come from? Did, did God allow that trial for some reason? And where are you going? Are you, are you running away? Or did you seek the Lord's permission to run? And... and and rather than, and when the angel finds Hagar, the angel didn't come along and said, oh, poor Hagar, I'm so sorry for everything that has happened. You poor thing. What would you like? You want to go to McDonald's? You want to go to McDonald's? I know some good counsellors. 
people that can just give you some encouragement. I, I know a halfway house that perhaps will, will just bring you to that point just to care for you and everything else. Look, it's okay. You don't have to go back to those evil people. They're bad people, those. No, listen. That's not what the angel of the Lord says. He doesn't say, hey, guy, just do what's right in your own heart. Oh, boy, I heard that one. Somewhat surprisingly for us in our 21st century culture, God sent Hagar back to the family. What? But he was, there's difficulties there. Now, he did this for, the, for several reasons. Because God wanted to use the situation to help each of those three characters to learn to face their problems, to confront them, to resolve them, to deal with it, because now this is a real problem. We're all, nobody's going to run away from here. We're all going to deal with it. Abram had to face it, Sarah had to deal with it, and Hagar had to live with it. Please understand, this is not one of those churches you go to where I'm going to tell you that God wants to make you happy. No, that is not his will for your life. God does not want to make you happy. God wants to make you holy. If that is upsetting to you, sorry. You feel that way. Not sorry for the statement. Forcing you to face your problems is one way of maturing you, of moving you to greater holiness, of accomplishing that end that you will one day be built up in the image of Jesus. The word that we all hate, it's not a four-letter word, it's a five-letter word, uh, six actually, one, two, three, four, six-letter word in our day. The word is submit. <gasps> you just said the S word. Submit. Oh, have that. What is this? Oh. You don't like it. I don't like it. I know that you don't like it. Yet we find it everywhere in Scripture, don't we? Just another instance where these cultural pressures seem to override biblical commands even within the church. We sputter and say, but Lord, you know how I've been mistreated. You know how bad it is. Just give me the blessing, Lord. Just give me the blessing. And I'll submit. And God says, no, submit first and then I will give you the blessing. Submit, then I will bless. Obedience always comes before the blessing. There is a formula from the Bible. Obedience comes before the blessing. If you see your life getting out of control, One of the first things you've got to check in your checklist is, have I been obedient? Have I submitted to God? Yes, the way of obedience is hard, but the way of disobedience is even harder. It was actually better for Hagar to be associated with Abram and that woman Sarai 
even with her harshness, then it was good for Hagar to go back to to the Egyptians, to her homeland, to her family, to her false gods. It's better for you to actually be in a local church as imperfect as it is with all its faults than to be in the world where God is not known. If you find the Christian life difficult, being a non-Christian is even more difficult. Fourthly, God's promise. Our last point, God's promise. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. He will live in hostility with all his brothers. And she gave his name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have seen the one who sees me. Concerning the the son in her womb, the Lord tells her to name him Ishmael, which means, Ishmael actually means the God hears. God sees. Because the Lord saw her affliction, saw her affliction. It's every time she called her son's name, Hagar would be reminded of God's faithfulness, that God did not forget her. God reveals that Ishmael is going to be an interesting character, that uh, he will be a a wild man, that uh, he will be like a donkey, strong, independent, untamed, he'll be a fighter, you know, a rebel without a cause, I suppose, against everyone. In, in in, In verse 12, it says that the word means to the east of, or over against. So this is where the, the, the name for the Middle East comes from. Both are true. Ishmael's is the father of the Arab nations. The Arab descendants would live to the east of where, you know, of where the Palestine, well, the, well where is the, the promised land? They will be forever in opposition to God's chosen people, to Isaac's descendants. And I know, you're asking yourself, how did God allow this to happen? Didn't God already foresee all the conflict and all the the blood that will be shed over thousands of years? And it hasn't stopped. And it will continue on until the day that Jesus comes back. Because God, it's a divine mystery. But God sovereignly sovereignly chooses Isaac and his line through Jacob. And while he sets and he blesses Ishmael and his descendants against God's chosen people. The conflict is in the news every day. Every day. Started here. Started here. 
Was God in on it? Did God allow it? Is this part of his plan of redemption? Well, yeah, it's all going to come together in one day in the great battle and you need to read revelations for that. But if we go even further than that, it's actually was the result of people mistrusting God that he is faithful, that he is caring, that his plan will be carried out and it's the result of people doing things their own way, trying to sideline God from their will. And then God moving in his divine way, many times mysterious way to bring all of this to a conclusion that he will one day. It starts with this awful behaviour between a godly man that God has chosen and his wife and, and these people of God have behaved in such an ungodly manner. Yeah, and then we're sad because of it and what's resulted. But you see, maybe I'm a little bit too harsh accusing Abraham and Sarah because I look at my own heart and I say, well, maybe I would have done the same thing. Sometimes I behave in the same way. I look for shortcuts. I resist God's will. I don't trust God as much as I should. And maybe I treat unfairly other people that God is blessing as well. And even though Abram had been unfaithful in his dealings with Hagar, God remains faithful. God remained faithful to her. God remains faithful to his promises. God remains faithful to his own glory. God remains faithful because he is God. Because he's God. 